only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here with Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, is Russiagate finally over? Is Theresa May Britain's worst prime minister? And does a new EU copyright directive mean the end of memes? See if you can spot the pattern. Russia. Russia, Vladimir Putin, Russia, Russia, Russia. Did Russia. the Trump campaign, did the candidate at the heart of it, conspire with Russia to subvert American democracy? Russia, 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 Russia. Moscow, Moscow. Russian military intelligence obtained for him his opponent's field operation plans. Donald Trump, either wittingly or unwittingly, is an asset of the Russian government. Which is like nothing we have ever confronted before as a nation. After two years of investigation costing $25 million with 2,800 subpoenas, 500 search warrants and 500 witness interviews, the Mueller investigation has finally come to an end. Its key conclusion? That the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about the Mueller probe and and what this means? Yeah, so really what this means is that a lot of liberals who had their hopes pinned on Mueller that he was going to kind of single-handedly bring down Trump by finding some sort of treasonous behavior on behalf of uh, the Trump administration working with Russia to throw the election has just all kind of come crashing down before their eyes. So the report was filed over the weekend. The Attorney General William Barr put out a four-page summary in which he set out the arguments effectively saying, as you say, that no coordination or collusion was found on the issue of obstruction of justice, whether or not Trump was doing anything to try and stymie the investigation, either by firing former FBI Director James Comey, either by floating the idea that various witnesses might get pardoned on Twitter, all this kind of stuff. Apparently, Mueller just set out the arguments either side and could neither exonerate him um, nor damn him in that particular instance. And I think the response has been quite interesting. You've got a lot of people who previously have been holding up Mueller as some sort of completely um, unimpeachably professional Mm. (laughs) individual now saying we need to see his full report because then what might he be hiding almost? Um, But on the other side, I think you've got mainly a lot of people being a bit quiet because the frankly conspiracy theory that many people in the democratic party party and in the liberal media in the u.s had pinned all of their anti-trump hopes on has turned out to be nothing now it's not to say that there's not people in the trump campaign who are obviously crooks who obviously did dodgy things there are various people who've ended up in jail as a result of this process but this idea which from the off always seems so outlandish so ridiculous so kind of you know cold war nostalgia almost that trump was some sort of manchurian candidate that he was putin's puppet has gone away now and i think hopefully now we can get back to a much healthier debate which is about how do you challenge trump through the ballot box through ideas all the rest of it and how do you focus on his you know very real (laughs) character flaws um without constantly having to peddle what was obvious from the start to anyone a kind of wild conspiracy theory hello well, I share that hope, but I don't think it's going to become a reality anytime soon because I think part of what the brilliant piece by Sean Collins and Spike this week pointed out is that the obsession with the Trump-Russia connection, which mm. he's called the birtherism of the left, which is a great way of putting it, um, 
lives on. You've already got, as you said, Tom, questions about the Mueller report. Uh, People just will not let this go. And that's part of the problem. Their inability to let it go means that uh, Trump (laughs) is bolstered in support. I mean, he is living at large off the back of this Mm. because he gets to posture and say, ha ha, I told you so, I didn't do anything wrong. And, uh, you know, I think any sensible person knows that Trump is not squeaky clean, certainly. But it may be the case that what he has done, he's done perfectly legally. And so you can't kind of pin him down on this basis. The inability of the Democrats to wage any kind of war against Trump that's based on politics and policy and big ideas, (laughs) rather than trying to pin him on gossip on the kind of scaremongering around Russia, actually shows their deeper problem, which is that this isn't just about Trump. It's also about Trump voters. Really, it's about saying Russia did it, which means stupid Mm. people listen to Russians or Russians meddled rather than Trump actually winning over some voters. So there's that very kind of illiberal and undemocratic strain to all of this, which I don't think is going away anytime soon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and what you can really see is that there was just no way that many of the people who supported Hillary Clinton would ever really come to terms with the fact that they lost. And they lost for very good reasons, you know, that there were reasonable challenges that people could make to their politics. So instead, there was just ridiculous displacement activity to the extent that Mueller was even held up as some kind of religious icon. You know, as Sean Collins points out, you could buy votive candles with his his face on Mm. it. Or or you might have, people might have seen the Saturday Night Live sketch Mm. at at Christmas. You know, all I want for Christmas is you you holding up a picture of of Mueller. People have invested so much stock in this that it's obviously going to be very hard for them to to let go. But as, as as we've said, you know, it is a conspiracy theory. Even even before the Mueller investigation, it was pretty clear there is simply no way that Russia, with um, a GDP smaller than Italy's, was going to be hold such an enormous sway over the world's biggest superpower. It, it was always ridiculous, and I'm, it's great that this can be sort of put to bed with yeah. the Mueller. Uh, report. Well, it was a classic conspiracy theory in that you take one thing that's true, <laughs> which mm. is the fact that there were these kind of, you know, Russian kind of cyber attempts to mess around with the US election, by which I mean mainly just kind of trying to ferment more division and more debate on, on online, trying to kind of accentuate the extremes. We, you know, we should remember that there was, I think it was 14 people, Russians, who were indicted throughout this process for hacking democratic emails, you know, coordinating with WikiLeaks, etc. That's all kind of there and that could be talked about on its own terms. But you take that one little thing and then extrapolate it to something insane, which mm. is that the president of the United States is a Russian asset that, you know, remember the, the Steele dossier, the yeah. thing that was put together originally as kind of Democratic Party oppo research, claiming that they, the Russians actually had compromat on him because they had this tape of him cavorting with urinating prostitutes <laughs> in hotel rooms. You know, you take these small bits and then use it out to extrapolate it. And I think we shouldn't forget that this wasn't just a case of you know people writing this story for for gain people really bought into this you know the supposedly erudite switched on um, level-headed center and center left completely dived into this story with with both feet you know this was something which you know rachel maddow on msnbc was just raving about every night you know night after night and the other thing we can't really let people just brush this under the carpet because there's a lot of people who really just completely threw journalistic standards out of the window in the pursuit of this you had this long procession of stories you know which would be kind of splashed across the the pages of the newspapers and then quietly retracted or just kind of contradicted further along down the line again coming back to the question of the steel dossier this was something that originally kind of sat 
sat on journalists in sat in journalists in trace for months and months and months because they knew that they couldn't corroborate it they knew that a lot of the stories were mm. absolutely wild but as soon as they had a um hook in which to publish it you know the fact that at the time James Comey passed it on to Trump and to then President Obama BuzzFeed published it in its entirety and even some of yeah. the people involved in pushing out that particular part of the story will openly admit that they couldn't corroborate this stuff you know that there were actually just simple errors within that dossier itself so i think whilst um what's been really revealing about it on the one hand is how easily they slipped into this kind of conspiracism but on the other hand um how they let it get so ahead you know of of the facts and let it get so ahead of just what would normally be normal journalistic practice i mean this is precisely the sort of thing that people in the center accuse people on the kind of trumpy fringes of doing of being you know being so easily worked up into a fury by nonsense and yet that's precisely what's happened in this instance well you could just call it fake news to use that trumpian term i think that's one of the main takeaways from this also is that this is this is trumpist politics i mean this is the birth conspiracy this is the whole scandal or non-scandal around hillary clinton's emails i mean this is the kind of the lowbrow politics that people criticize trump for for whipping up Mm. controversy for uh you know indulging in conspiracy theory and the democrats are doing it and the liberals in america are doing it too so as far as them having a leg to stand on after this is all over they simply don't what it means for politics more generally is that it's very hard to see if future in American politics within either the Democrat or the Republican parties because they're both so mired in this kind of tit-for-tat nonsense and you can imagine that American voters on both sides are sort of pretty sick of this by now and actually just want to get back to arguing what's best for the country without that sounding too cliche <laughs> well two years until the election you know they've the democrats have wasted the first two years on on this russia probe it seems unlikely that they're going to suddenly discover politics as a solution for getting rid of trump in, mm. in, in anytime soon who well, knows well the only thing about trump is that his capacity for completely shooting himself in the foot <laughs> so <laughs> obviously in relation to the russia conspiracy theory stuff you know Peter Baker in the New York Times of all places noted recently that fi- over 50% of people in a recent poll um, said that they thought that this was a witch hunt. <laughs> mm. That's far bigger than Trump's base. You know, they have really handed him a bit of a boost on relation to this. But, you know, just days after this, you hear that Trump's Department of Justice is going to go after Obamacare, you know, trying to unpick that through the courts, which yeah. was the central issue which the Democrats kind of run on in the midterms and really cleaned up on. So, you know, whether or not this is going to um, help Trump out as much as we might think it is, it's probably going to be limited by his own um, idiocy, frankly. <laughs> I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Theresa May has offered to stand down as Prime Minister if MPs back her disastrous Brexit deal. May's government has been in open freefall for months after suffering the biggest ever government defeat on the floor of the House of Commons earlier this year. Her own ministers have defied the government whip, and her confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP seems to be at breaking point. 
Ella, would you be pleased to see the back of Theresa May? Uh, yes, <laughs> me and a lot of people like me. It's interesting because a lot of people, even Leave voters that I know, have congratulated her on the basis, not of her politics, but on mm. the basis that she's supposedly been steadfast, that she's resilient, she's kind of po-faced when people are shouting at her quite viciously as the time goes on in the House of Commons. And they've said, you know, this is whatever you think of Theresa May's politics, she's a kind of, you know, she's got guts of steel. Mm. Actually, I think that the main problem with her and why she is a terrible prime minister and should go is because she's completely gutless, because her steadfastness does not come from a commitment to anything, but a commitment to nothing and a kind of cowardice and that she, if she wanted to make a a career for herself, if she wanted to make a splash in the history books, backing the leave vote in its entirety and kind of going against her party, I imagine that would do that for you. And that's certainly the position I'd like her to take. On the other hand, uh, she could satisfy Parliament and scupper Brexit completely, but she doesn't want to do either of these things. So she's kind of been playing games for the last two and a half years. Having said that, I'd like to see the back of her. I don't know who I'd like to see step in her place Mm. because I cannot put my finger on one parliamentarian. I trust to go within an inch of Brexit and do it any good. I mean, even the most ardent Brexiteers up until this point have this week come out and said that they might back her deal, Jacob Rees-Mogg included. So if Theresa May goes, who's going to come in and step in her place? Mark I don't Francois. know. <laughs> <laughs> Tom. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating because you have been seeing a kind of prime minister and administration just kind of decompose in front of your very mm-hmm. eyes. Now, there's a lot of unique circumstances to this, obviously. There's the fact that we're going through this incredibly torturous Brexit process, which I think can kind of be summed up at the moment, which is, MPs are desperate to just bury it, but at the same time, they're too terrified to do so. So they just want to kind of long out the process as much as is humanly possible. Um, And at the same time, we have this very strange situation where you have an incredibly unpopular party leader, but again, the the impossibility of trying to move against her, partly because, Mm. as Ella says, there's no clear line of succession and no clear line of succession that, you know, a good bunch of Tories would probably be happy with, but also because they did already try to, you know, the ERG in particular did try to force this coup at the end of last year. They lost, and now they are technically stuck with her for a year, potentially, if there's no other reason. So it is pretty incredible but the thing i keep coming back to is trying to think about what what may thinks about anything in relation yeah. to this stuff i mean it's would it feels slightly uncharitable but brexit has really been fascinating because obviously for the you know the first few months of her uh, premiership it was all about trying to be the border game brexiteer you know this was the time at which nick timothy who was her who was her aide her speechwriter really the kind of power behind the throne it was seen who was a kind of brexiteer wanting to push her in more of that kind of red tory direction Mm. as well and yet as soon as you had the setback of the general election all of that seemed to go completely out of the window you you know you had to move towards a much softer brexit a much more conciliatory approach and one of the things which i think has bedeviled this process is not only does theresa may not really believe in brexit it's not entirely clear she believes in anything at all um and that's one of the things which i think is in some respects defined her her career in politics now there's certain things that as we know she's become particularly obsessed over immigration which we might get into mm. in a second but you know uh, just looking back at this you know throughout her time in the home office there's no real coherence to a lot of this just a lot of it ends up being pretty disastrous she wanted to so she scrapped new labor id cars but then introduced the snoopers charter she took the police to task for stop and search and you know wanted to decry this this image of the Tory party is the nasty party and yet then presided over the hostile environment policy, which yeah. led to, you know, effectively bl- black Britons being deported because they didn't have their paperwork. There's a kind of her whole incredibly technocratic 
get the job done, as she would say, approach to politics, just demonstrates how she doesn't, those kinds of politicians don't really believe in anything at all. And when you're dealing with something like Brexit, which is about a big principle being on the table, and is also about a lot of leadership and courage necessary, it's just so clear that a politician like that just, you know, does not work in this kind of circumstance. Yeah. Well, I think the the fact that she gave that speech at the 2002 party conference about the nasty party and, and that kind of wish to improve the image of the Tories in, it tells you a lot actually about what kind of a politician she is because if you see what she's done in relation to Brexit, she's talked the talk for the last mm, three and a yeah. half years. And actually, that's, you know, it's one of these cases in which you think the internet is a fantastic tool because someone has put together every single clip of her ever saying, we will leave on March the 29th <laughs> and has replaced it with her new statement that we'll leave on March, uh, May the 22nd or something. But so she's consistently said things. She kind of wants to put across the right image. She's very good at portraying herself as a kind of steadfast person, even when her voice breaks, even when her long arm go gangling around the place and people draw cartoons of her <laughs> but the substance of her when you get down to it exactly as tom says is very limited i mean she will sway with the wind one one week we're hearing that she spent the weekend talking with the erg and sucking up to them the next week we hear that she's in with uh calling for cross-party talks and even in relation to getting <laughs> listening to the tiggers about what to do in relation to brexit so you just can't trust this woman's principle at all and that kind of that uh, emphasis on uh, her image and what what she thinks that british people want to hear which is just a load of rhetoric around brexit she thinks mm. that will suffice and of course it won't i've always had disagreements with theresa may as, as we've said she's a terrible home secretary incredibly incredibly illiberal yeah one of the most liberal home secretaries in living memory but in 2016 towards the end of 2016 after brexit she did seemed to understand where Brexit needed to go. She understood, mm. or at least Nick Timothy understood perhaps, <laughs> that Brexit meant leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. And that has been abandoned so quickly. And it was abandoned behind our backs yeah. as well. They were negotiating this deal for years that wasn't going to properly take us out of the EU at the same time as she would present herself as this steely hard Brexiteer. No, definitely. And I think her incompetence and cowardice has been such a boon to the remainer set and the kind of rearguard remain set because every step of the every step of the way they've been able to see see brexit is impossible see these red lines were so unrealistic you know people still make this argument that theresa may's red lines are crazy and that's why this isn't working yeah. despite the fact she has completely rubbed out her red lines you know mm. not not too long ago you know the sort of brexit she's aiming for despite the fact that there's a lot of excitement in parliament this week about norway or norway plus it's pretty close to norway in the first place it is you a know? norway option essentially yeah and this is what is but again the the, that combination of again her cowardice, the fact that she's gone back on her red lines, and also um, her duplicitousness, the fact that she is just effectively, particularly ever since the withdrawal agreement has come out back in what was it November now, she's misrepresented it every time she's talked about mm -hmm. it. She said that it was a meaningful Brexit. She's effectively got up and lied time and time again. Whilst there are a lot of you know there is a lot of competition in Parliament at the moment for the people who've done the most damage to people's faith in democracy, she's of course as the Prime Minister right up there because not only has she handled this process terribly and put Brexit at even greater threat as a consequence of that, she's just lied and lied and lied again. And that's going to have a huge impact on, on politics going forward, definitely. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, 
why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. The EU Parliament has approved sweeping new changes to copyright law online, which some say could spell the end of the internet as we know it. The most controversial aspect of the directive is Article 13, which will hold tech platforms responsible if users post copyrighted material without a license. Some worry that this could mean the end of memes, as lots of shareable content relies on copyrighted images or stills from film and TV. Tom, what do you make of this? Uh, No deal now, no. But it is one of those things that just reminds you how um, illiberal and bureaucratic... Um, and how much of a racket the EU is as well. That's one of the things yeah. that's really striking about these um, this particular directive, Article 13, as you said, which is shifting the responsibility for copyright infringement basically from individual users and what they post to platforms themselves. Now, on the one hand, this is going to create a situation in which platforms are basically going to be incentivized to kind of censor first and ask questions later. You know, you put up anything, it's going to go through some sort of filtering process, it's presumed. And if there's any um, potentially copyright material, then that's just not effectively going to be able to go out. As you say, the whole culture of memes, which is about kind of taking bits of pop culture and remixing them and putting them in different contexts and these kind of recurring jokes and all this kind of stuff is going to be almost impossible to do. But it's also... a a classic piece of kind of eu policy as well insofar as it's something which is going to greatly benefit the big companies and not the kind of smaller startups etc who is going to be able to afford to create these kind of huge you know kind of plugins for their particular platforms which will enable someone to you know upload an image and then it gets scanned through all these different examples to show that it's not for copyright and this is one of the things the eu allows for this kind of thing the very secretive very behind closed doors ways in which um, laws are made allows the biggest companies to put the most lobbying effort in and to make sure that these align with their rules so on the one hand yes it just shows how it deeply liberal it is but also how much this kind of who this really benefits you know and it's, it's certainly not users and it's also certainly not you know smaller startup internet companies it seems like one thing that's interesting is that in in the actual bill um in response to you know when it was first drafted the eu has specifically said that memes will be exempt the rule makes exemptions for quotations criticisms and parody but considering all the new monitoring that we'll need as you've said and considering that that's going to have to be done by algorithms and filters because it would simply just be far too expensive for facebook to have employ someone to read every single post you you put (laughs) up i mean it's going to have to be done by machines and how on earth is an algorithm supposed to tell that one image is being used as a meme and one is in breach of, Mm. of copyright i mean in the offline world Copyright cases are lengthy, they're expensive, they're extremely complex, you know, they involve tons and tons of lawyers. And so the idea that this can just be replaced by an algorithm is, is beyond ridiculous. And as you say, Tom, they, the platforms will want to avoid being fined, will want to avoid um, punishment, and so they will err on the side of censorship. You've got a really interesting problem. I mean, the internet is 30 years old this year. Mm. And in the space of those 30 years, we've kind of got this incredible catapulting of technological advance. Mm. And it poses some difficult and interesting questions. How do you deal with the fact of copyright, which is it is wrong to steal someone's work? How do you manage to deal with that? Well, Mm. and obviously the solution that an institution like the EU comes up with is clamp down, basically. There's no nuance to it. There's no big thinking to it. It's just clamping down. I think you have to also draw parallels 
uh, with this seemingly quite technical piece of legislation and proposal and with the broader discussion about free speech online, because the two go hand in hand and are informed by one another, is this idea that the internet should be a place which is mega regulated, in which users are uh, suspected before they are trusted, and that the big companies, and certainly the big social media companies, are the ones who hold all the power. So I mean, even in the instance of having to trust big companies like Facebook and Twitter to do this, I mean, we've long spiked argued that it's it's not that they're evil and you can't trust them, but it's mm. because they're biased that you can't trust them. And so it, it's always going to mean that the users of these tools and the users of the internet lose out. So it would be wrong to see this as simply a technical thing. It has links to the kind of attacks on free speech. And if you want to argue for a free uh, online experience in which people can do what they want within the law... Mm then these kind of measures are quite worrying. And also, if you just sort of couple it, particularly with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which came in last year, it's really had a huge impact on how most Europeans can access the internet and how free-flowing information goes. You know, we've been talking about American politics earlier in this podcast. There are swathes of huge US publications you just Mm. cannot read if you're a European citizen now. Similarly, the the meme ban, such as it is, is going to have, is effectively, and Matthew Lesh, point this out on capex the other day is effectively going to create two internets you know at least in the western world you're going to have a kind of free one and then you're going to have a european one in which Mm. content is far more restricted than it is elsewhere and it's just um striking again that people think of the european union as this very liberal very kind of future orientated you know almost like have that kind of strange utopian view of it um when just on the question of internet freedom those two you know huge shifts that have taken place have severely limited or in this case will severely limit people's freedom on the internet and the scope of what you can even access you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the show don't forget to give us a rating a review or even make a donation we'll be back next week but for more spike content every day visit spiked-online.com if you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.